Wine Monk, Arizona Wine Podcast by Cody Vladimir Burkett. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the special Arizona Statehood Day slash St. Trifon's Feast Day slash, well, I guess, might as well say Valentine's Day, too. Yeah. I prefer VD Proliferation Day, but that's just me. <laughs> I'm here with my friend Derek J. Power, who is a writer and musician and general all-around awesome character. He is the only person who really kept me sane in my two years of exile in Boston. Today, we are going to be drinking an Arizona Rosé. This is the Velvet Slippers Club 2012 GSM Rosé from Yavapai County, actually, down in the Merkin block in Page Springs. I'm getting ready to so, it's my tradition on Valentine's Day, or what the rest of the world calls Valentine's Day, to drink an Arizona wine in honor of St. Trifon the Pruner, who is the patron saint of wine and winemakers in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, those of you who know me know that I am Orthodox. Those of you who know me even better know that for a time I actually had this crazy idea to be a Greek Orthodox priest. I got better. <laughs> yeah, so, seminary kind of kills that kind of ambition very quickly. Yes, yes it does. And kudos to all those who can survive that ordeal. Those are the few, the proud, and the brave. Amen to that. What a GSM rosé means is, quite simply, a rosé made from three particular grapes, Grenache, Syrah, and Mouvedra. This particular style of rosé is very common in the Rhone region of France as well as Provence. In fact, that area is very, very famous for the style of rosé. And I really feel like uh, they're the only place that really does it better than Arizona. I feel like the rest of the rest of the world kind of pales in rosés. Uh, Italy does some good ones, but my take on the situation. And I thought I'd share a rosé with Derek, specifically from Caduceus, because he's a bit of a fan of Maynard, but he also knows wine. And I recall you had a Judith at one point, didn't you? Uh, yes. I, be- I believe, yes, I believe it was, I believe it was a Judith. I still have the bottle, actually, because this was uh, during... His first year doing selling wine, he did a little mini wine tour. He went to various cities throughout the United States, and he did a stopover in Cambridge. So I, I went over to about, wow, like five years ago. <laughs> like five years ago this summer or so. But anyways, I was one of those that caught that, and so I got one of those bottles, and it was it was actually signed by him, and so I still have it. And, and actually, I have to thank you for uh, giving me the final push to finally have it, because I think I had it at the right time, because it was, it, was, uh, it was during its peak, and it was also during Arizona. 100. So. Yeah, so that was like the greatest way to celebrate. Yep. So, and I, re- I really, I remember really enjoying it. It, it was very flavorful, and I liked the, the the richness of it. And yeah, it just it just it was just full of I don't know, it was just full of color and, and variety, just all within one with one wine. So I really really liked. Yeah, that. and they uh, the Judith vintages specifically actually come from the vineyard here in Jerome. This one is not. This one's coming from down the mountain. But I tried to get one for you that is kind of close to where I live now that didn't cost an arm and a leg. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, that's 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 cool that uh, you're in the neighborhood, so to speak. Yes, yes, I'm a uh, I'm a fan of. I approach this first and foremost as a fan of a tool and uh, of a perfect circle as well. I've not heard Pussifier. I know his style and and, and everything. So, but it's it's great. Which taking on and that is completely the opposite of way that I've approached Maynard, which is purely through wine. Right. Um, I've never really heard any of his music. Never really cared to hear any of his music. Sorry, Maynard. Love you, Maynard. Um, as a wine 
winemaker. And he makes some really good wines. I've been quite pleased with everything that I've tasted from him. So I've, I've read a few of uh, I've read a few of his interviews, and particularly when he talks about wine, and that he approaches it in a you know, it, it's it's definitely he definitely went into it knowing what he wanted and, and knowing what he, uh, and having an idea of what he was going for, and then just kind of jumping into it and, and just really really embracing the process, and then. And I think he's just gotten better over time. And I think it's I think that's incredible for a first time winemaker. I, mean, well, I think I, his grandfather, if I remember right, was was a winemaker too in Italy. But I'm um, not, I, I, I would be surprised <laughs> if, that, if, if if that was if that was another part of it as well. But uh, yeah, he, he's, so, he's in tune with that that kind of stuff. So that's that's always cool. So one of the other reasons why I wanted to do a rosé specifically was to kind of introduce this idea of the Arizona rosé as being a major component of what will make Arizona wine stand out from wines from elsewhere in the U.S. standing on a world stage. Because I feel that rosé is one thing that Arizona does very, very well. And this provides kind of a, a touchstone, as it were, to talk about it. Now, normally, since this is Velvet Slippers Club, it's part of their wine club, you can't get this. But sometimes they actually do pour this in the tasting room for special occasions. For instance, I got my bottle that I'm drinking here, and I got Derek's bottle that he's drinking over there right around Thanksgiving when they actually had this on their Thanksgiving flight. So if you're very, very lucky and you time your visit right, you can get this rosé from them. Otherwise, uh, you should join their wine club. So without further ado, let's dig in. All right, let's enjoy Fifty Shades of Rosé. There's only one rosé. <laughs> Sorry, this is... I, I'm, I'm doing a little anti-VD thing. Yeah, I know. I, I was trying to make a Lord of the Rings reference, and I couldn't come up with one quick enough. Like, there is only one shade of rosé, and something, 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 something you shall not pass. <laughs> Why is something, something rosé side, something, something complete. <laughs> so the environment where they're growing these particular grapes, but down in Page Springs, which is also where Kolomsky grows, it's where Havelina Leap grows. Down the road was the old Echo Canyon vineyard. There's other small growers that are in there with private vineyards, too. The environment there is right at the foot of House Mountain, which is this very interesting geologic feature where you had a shield volcano that once erupted at the edge of the Mugion Rim, then got buried by lake sediments, and then later the mountain eroded out again. So in this region of the Verde Valley, you have this interplay between basalt and limestone, sometimes within feet of each other, as parts of it have eroded away. Also, there's lots of big blocks because it's right by the edge of the volcano where literally rocks tumbled down during deposition from the mountain intermingled with the limestone, creates a very, very unique terroir that really, uh, the only place that really approaches it, from my knowledge, is actually going to be the Becca Valley in Lebanon. Essentially, you've got this calcium-rich soil, limestone, very similar to parts of Burgundy, along with the richness that's volcanic soil, very similar to Rhone. And so you get this really, really complex interplay of characteristics that influence the grapes. Okay. So I heard you pour it into the glass. Yep. So tell me, Derek, what do you smell on the nose of this wine? The first thing I notice, it smells like um, either like mandarin orange or tangerine. It's very, very strong. Yeah, that, that tangerine smell is what I is what I pick uh, first. Well, that, that's what to me it smells like. Yeah, that's actually I don't remember that being in being in that nose in the tasting room, but admittedly I mostly just grabbed it because it's like I took a sip as I'm like, ooh, GSM rosé. I like rosés. <laughs> I like this particular style. I have a friend who's not terribly fond of the style and thinks that 
Oh God, it's another GSM wine in Arizona. Please, for the love of God, shoot me. I have to confess, Cody, with this particular varietal, this this is my first time. Aww. <laughs> and it's on Valentine's Day. How adorable and giving. I guess I'll introduce the varietals that are in this blend too. Grenache. Uh comes from Spain and Rhone. It provides a lot of the fruity characteristics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Syrah is originally from Lebanon, but it was brought forth thanks to the Crusades back to France. Yeah. Yay, Crusaders. <laughs> and then Mouvedre is kind of the wild card. We're not really sure where that came from. We know it's also grown in Spain along with the Rhone. Probably came from Spain, but the consensus is not in as to whether it's an indigenous Spanish varietal or something that the Carthaginians actually brought into Spain. Mm-hmm. And in Spain, it's known as Monastrel because, apparently, that was the big grape grown for communion wine at the various monasteries in northern Spain. Monastery, okay. Monastrel. How it got the name of Vedra, I haven't the foggiest idea. I'm sure someone will comment and tell me why that is, but... I'm just trying to think of like, the etymology of it. Just like, is it, it sounds like, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to say anything that's not true. So what else are you getting on the nose of this wine? Um, I'm just, I'm kind of, I'm oxygenating to see if, see if there's anything else that comes in. But. So I'm getting a little bit of um, sort of a cinnamon myrrh spice thing. Yeah, I can, I can smell that a bit. Maybe, yeah, maybe not cinnamon, maybe, but it's I some sort of spice, maybe. You were describing the, um, the, the individual varietal components. I think what I smelled first was the uh, Grenache, but now that I'm smelling it a bit more, I think I can, I can smell the Syrah a little bit. Just, like you said, that little cinnamon myrrh gives it a little, uh, I don't know, it gives it a little spice a little kick or so also getting a little bit of sort of a some sort of berry yeah. maybe cranberry yeah yeah mm, actually i i said earlier that it, it's it reminded me of mandarin oranges just very 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 tangy i don't want to say tart because to me tart when i say it it can kind of mean dry but that's not really it's very it smells like a juicy sweet yeah it's got yeah, that like just... fruit gum smell but it's not yeah. that bad way at all it, oh, yeah, oh that's yeah. my favorite gum now I know why. Reminds me of a GSM rosé. The more you know. Let us dig in. We'll also, probably the nose will change a little bit as it opens up. It's 2012, so it has a little bit of age. Most rosés you want to drink within about four or five years. Although you can age some of them. Actually, I don't think anyone's ever tried to age rosé. I know I haven't usually because rosé is my to-go-to summer wine style. So, uh, yeah. I, don't really live, I, I can use a little bit of summer. <laughs> yeah, right now. How much freaking snow have you guys had? Six feet. Holy free holies. Six, six That's feet and seventeen days. I mean, That's I granted, it's it's a, it's about my height, but yes, yeah, six feet of snow in seventeen days, and there's going to be more coming soon. How do you people live? I don't know. This is like worse than Montana. <laughs> Let's drink. All right, chin chin. Chin Chin. Makes me always think of what nail and I went. Yeah, that's that's where I got it. I know that's where you got it. I watched it with you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I made you the more crazy man that you are now, so. <laughs> well, it was the only way to get through seminary. So, Derek and I, back when I was at seminary, you know, I'd go through the week. Friday night was kind of our decompress night. Derek would ride in like and come in to save the day and... <laughs> 
we'd bring a stack of movies that were all Criterion Collection, and we'd go out to get a burger at Tasty Burger, then we'd go smoke Kuka, and then we'd come in and watch Criterion Collection movies, and that's how I built up a film palette as well. And so we'd watch all these movies, and I learned a lot about film and filmography. And actually, Derek is in the process of writing several scripts for what he calls the relationship triptych. I read them. They're awesome. I wish someone would make them. The first thing I would do if I had $2 million is do a vineyard, and then what what sloth I'd throw the money at you for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Isn't there a, a website where uh, people can look at that? Why, yes, there is. You go to relate3.com. That's R-E-L-A-T-E, number three, dot com to find out more. You can read on the progress that I've done thus far. You also can click on our about pages for each of the three proposed films. You click on those, you read a summary synopsis of it, as well as you get a link to the script. So, and I did that five years ago. And there's many more that I'm doing right now. I'm keeping it very close, but hopefully I can reveal those all in good time. I'm really also hoping that Derek makes a spiritual successor to Sideways set in the Arizona wine industry. So far, he hasn't taken me up on that. That's one of them. (laughs) That's one of the ones that I'm thinking of. So, believe me, I, I, um, I have a lot of ideas. So... Excellent. Speaking of Arizona wine and same trifon in Arizona Statehood Day, happy 103rd birthday, Arizona. Woo! Hey, to the Grand Canyon State. So, what are you getting on the palate of this wine? You know, it's funny. On when I, I describe the nose as being really full and juicy, on the palate, I'm getting that tart feeling, and it's it's very. Um, actually, it is like tasty. It's like actually, it's more like tasting like grapefruit. Just that very sharp tang is what is what. So I'm that used. part of that tang is actually partly due to the acidity. Um, Arizona wines tend to be very very acidic compared to California. Okay. Um, on par with again French and Italian wines. Mm-hmm. That acidity is really what makes Arizona wine so food friendly. Although this, I feel like you don't really need food with it. You can just drink this almost as a, a sort of porch pounder. Yeah. Because it's very, very, very refreshing. And I can definitely understand why this is more of a summer wine. Because, I don't know, just, yeah, it has that, that sharpness and refreshness. And I think people can associate with that season. So Arizona definitely does have, I think, the longest rosé season. Down in Phoenix. Sorry, Phoenix. Love you, Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. <laughs> it's a complicated relationship. Yeah, definitely. Uh, in Phoenix, you start your rosé season actually right at this time of year. I would say start it on Arizona State Today, Valentine's Day, Trifon's Feast Day. Finish off with Thanksgiving. A rosé is actually a really great pairing for Thanksgiving dinner if you live in a place that where you can pull it off, where it's not too cold and too wet or too rainy. Yeah. During that time of year. On this wine, along with that sort of tart fruit, tart grapefruit with a little bit of, I'm also getting some herbaceous notes like a sort of tarragon, sage, little bit of white pepper note. Yeah. I'm also getting that dryness, which in a lot of wines is categorized as leather, which is pretty typical in Arizona. You don't do very many sweet wines. Yeah, I definitely def- picked up on the dryness of it. It just because again, like the nose tells me that it's it's going to be this big, full, juicy fruit. But then as soon as you taste it, it's, it's almost like it almost deflates, for lack of a better way of describing it. It may deflate, but I would say that it's still a very, very fulfilling flavor for me. But then again, I love rosé. It's of course you know my. No, I, 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 I guess I guess it's just comparing the nose to, to the palate. Uh, just I mean that that's that's how it strikes to me. I mean it's, it's definitely not a it's definitely not a criticism, a negative criticism against them. It's just something that. I kind of notice just uh, going from smell to taste. I like it. I I can also, yeah, I I can see this as being great with Thanksgiving dinner if you you want a liquid substitute for cranberry sauce. Or, you know, 
have it with the cranberry sauce, or maybe even infuse some of this into the sauce. Yeah, or, you know, yeah. you know, let's you, go you crazy. Overwhelm it. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to overwhelm it. That's kind of what I was thinking of, of it being like a good, a yeah. good substitute. If you want to do this in the summer, I think it's also going to be great with a really, really nice, light, crisp salad, or even like sandwiches at a picnic. If you want to do some sort of like ham and turkey sandwich with the right dressing, or even no dressing, maybe just a little bit of Dijon mustard. Yeah, actually, now you're taking me back to alma mater. I went to the College of William and Mary, and one of the signature local places is the cheese shop. And actually, that was my first ever exposure to wine. In fact, when I, as soon as I turned 21, I uh, bought a couple of bottles of, of wine from there. But anyways, one of their big trademarks is, is their house dress site. So, and, and students, they would love to get their, their sandwiches. I mean, my personal favorite is a, is a turkey on wheat with provolone and house dress site. Ooh. So, yeah, that sounds really nice right about now. Those were the days. Yeah, especially considering Lent is coming up, and God, this Sunday is the last day we'll be able to eat meat for 47 yeah. days. Yeah. Yep. This, yep. No. This, 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 yep. Actually, actually the, the the funny thing about this year is is that the calendar really really makes it easy because because all of February is all the pre-Lenten Sundays and then then all of March is all the Lenten Sundays and then Palm Sunday is going to be on the fifth and then Pascha is the twelfth. So. Yeah. So you're right. It does. It, it works. Yep. So it's well, it's, it's, nice it's and probably even going to be a very time. cold Pascha in the Northeast though. <laughs> Early April. Uh, Not only because maybe, maybe none of the snow will melt it off. But I hope there's like a miracle thaw, but you know, I I, I don't know at this point. <laughs> I just want this over with. <laughs> now you want to move out here, don't you? My night hasn't even started yet, and I already wanted it to be over. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, there are three ways to make a rosé. You have way number one. Different rosés are made this way in different places. The one at Passion Cellars and the one at Galifant Cellars is made this way where you take a red grape and a white grape and blend them together. Case in point, at Passion Cellars, it's Grenache and I think Grenache Blanc. At Galifant Cellars, it was is Gewürztraminer and Mouvedra. So you have the Mouvedra again, but they blended it with a white grape, which is Gewürztraminer. So that's way number one. Way number two, which I think is how this one was made. Way number two is what's known as maceration style. Okay, it doesn't have an official name. That's what I call it. Yes, I know it sounds dirty, but it's really not. Maceration is, in wine terminology, is you let, usually a red, sit on the skins. And while it's sitting and fermenting on the skins, or actually this is before fermentation usually, the skins get that color from the grapes, and they also get some of the tannins again from the grapes. That's what makes red wines red is because this maceration period where it's sitting on the skins. Then you basically press it off the skins, and then you ferment it like you would a white wine. According to the cheat sheet here, this says whole cluster pressed and cold fermented at 52 degrees, which is about the standard um, temperature for fermenting a white. But the fact that it's whole cluster pressed may indicate that it's this method um, where you let the skins age and soak then basically, or in this case, what you would do is you literally don't even crush the grape. Just let the grape sit for a few days, and then you press it off of the skins. The skins, eventually, you know, in other places like in Europe, you can make grappa out of those skins. You don't do that here in Arizona, at least not yet. And then you ferment it as a white. Way number three is the main method of making rosé in France, which is how uh, Stronghold and Burning Tree, and I think, I think Michael Pierce made his rosé, this method too, is known as the saunier 
method. Which is where you basically crush the grapes, let them sit for a day or two, um, then you pump out some of the juice off of the skins, and then you ferment that juice that's pumped off like about a barrel's worth, maybe a barrel and a half. Ferment that as a white, and then you ferment the rest as a red on the skins, punch downs and all that. What that does is it gets you a stronger, darker, deeper red. So essentially there's, like I said, three ways to do The three ways to make a rosé, as there are three ways for everything in our religious tradition. Of course. You're not orthodox unless you say it three times. <laughs> amen, amen, amen. <laughs> So this is actually, like I said, coming from down the hill in Yavapai County. It's very, very light in terms of alcohol. I don't get any of that what's known in tasting wine terminology as heat. No real discernible taste of alcohol. And, of course, it's very, very light. 13.5, like I said, you could easily pound a bottle of this on the porch on a hot summer day quite easily. Actually, it's, it's interesting that you, you were, when you were describing the second way as as being more akin to the way that you would make white wines. And actually, that to me, that's sort of what it tastes like. It's, it's, it has a lot of characteristics that I would I would describe a good, chilled white wine. Um, and I mean, that's the other thing is I, I chilled this beforehand, so I think maybe that also... Kind of I think I may have mine a little over the proper serving temperature. It's been sitting out. Yeah, um, now, now that it's sitting out and now it's now it's going into more room temperature, I'm I'm you know it's, it's I I have less of that chilled effect. And actually, now I think I'm let me let me pour another glass because why not? The night's young and all that. It's sort of a Friday. So in terms of proper serving temperature for a rosé, I would argue that your best temperature for a rosé is right about 60 degrees, mm-hmm. about 55 to 60 degrees would yeah. be my ideal serving temperature. You yeah, could serve yeah. it warmer, no problem, but that's just the way I like it. Slightly chilled on a hot summer day. So if I'm sitting out on my porch on a day off, you yeah, know. I could, I could easily take this up to, say, the White Mountains of New Hampshire on a, on a summer day and just have that be a nice uh, nice picnic wine, especially, like, like you said, this whole sandwich. I was also thinking maybe salmon. Um, salmon would work quite well with this. Um, I feel like it might go even better with a Nebbiolo Rosé. Yeah. Um, which Caduceus also is known for making. It's the Lely Rosé. Um, and that fruit, I think, comes from Graham County, as opposed to Yavapai or Cochise, but I could be wrong on that. But yeah, salmon would be a great pairing for this. Yeah. And actually, now that I think it's opened up and, and more room temperature, I'm, I'm, I'm still tasting that tartness, but it's not as strong and it feels more, it feels a little more full body, like I would, like I would expect from reds, from certain reds, yeah. I can say. Well, that's probably the Syrah and Mouvedra that provide most of the body. Yeah. Um, in, Gr- in Arizona, Grenache is typically a very, very light grape. It's very hard to get that color out of it. So it tends to be one of Arizona's premier rosé grapes. And then here we've had the Syrah and Mouvedra, again, to add a little bit of body, a little bit of tannin, a little bit more character to it. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned before, this wine was aged in stainless steel. You generally do that here in Arizona with most of your whites, most of your rosés. If you're aging anything of these on oak, you're doing it neutral oak. And what neutral oak, that term means, is that oak has been used about two, three, four times. So most of those tannins and flavor characteristics that are in the oak can no longer are no longer there. There's very, very slight oak impartation into the wine, just maybe a hint of vanilla or something of that sort. This wine has no vanilla on the palate or on the nose. So that alone no, tells definitely, me, definitely. without even looking at the cheat sheet, that they gave me. This wine never touched oak, mm-hmm. except for the little bit I spilled on my oak desk. <laughs> Actually, the funny thing, like when I first when I first got the bottle and I, and I was looking at the color, it just it, it reminded me of. I mean, it looks like Robitussin. Just <laughs> and now that I'm 
getting into this, it, it, de- it definitely sort of tastes a little medicinal, um, which is not a bad thing. Yeah, it's that sort of eucalyptus basil thing that's now opening up, mm-hmm. which which does have that nice medicinal quality, like old-timey medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, back when they put opium in it, and it was good. <laughs> Now, as I'm holding this to a sheet of paper, the color, uh, it lightens in the glass. Obviously, in the bottle, it looks much darker. Right. But in the glass, it's sort of this really nice, light, salmon pink color. Yep. So if this wine was a person... <laughs> if this right. was a Terrence Malick movie, Terrence Malick movie would this wine be? Since we both know his filmography pretty well. Yeah. Um, let's see. I would... I would probably put this, hmm, this could be either Days of Heaven or To the Wonder. Yeah, I was gonna, I was kind of inclined towards To the Wonder. Yeah, I just, yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of that. Just, uh, I, I don't know, I, I can't exactly put my finger on it, which is usually the case whenever you, whenever you describe it. <laughs> yeah, it's a Terrence Malick movie. Can you ever put a finger on it? Yeah, especially, no. especially his later work, but, uh, but yeah, I, when I taste this, I, I think of, I think of To the Wonder. I guess, I guess it's maybe it's because, <clears throat> It's both, uh, you know, it's it's very it's very sweet, it's very passionate, but there's it's also very melancholic. I don't know, like, um, uh, yeah, I just I don't know why I don't know why I thought melancholic right now. I just um, I don't know, maybe it's the day or something. <laughs> it just, but that film has those qualities, and that's kind of what it reminds me of. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. It's a little wistful, especially this time of year. It's cold, it's dark. We're thinking of the light of summer, mm-hmm. the coming rosé season, picnics. And that that's uh, what just makes me think of Days of Heaven because it because in that one they're they're out in um, they're out in Western Texas and uh, most of it takes place in this uh, I forget exactly what they were harvesting but the way that the but the way that the fields and the house is set up it's it's almost as if someone took um, a uh, feudal well feudal lands from France and just transplanted it to <laughs> transplanted it to Western Texas so uh, there, there are a lot of long shots in in Days of Hemet that, that kind of remind me of uh, it has a medieval feel to it, like the uh, the classic book of the book of hours from France. I forget there's there's a better title for it. it I think once once I say it, you know what I'm talking about. Like I think for August where everybody you know everybody's gleaning in the fields. That's what kind of reminds me of. When I look at Days of Heaven and then the term makes me think of this. So now as this wine's opening up a little bit more, what else are we getting other than that basil and almost mint? And the fruit, I feel, on the palate is coming out more than just the grapefruit. Um... Let's see. Hold on. Yeah, I'm tasting the cinnamon. Yeah, definitely. So what else? What do you think about this wine in general? Um, it's, hmm. <laughs> I have to compose my thoughts a little bit. It's, I don't know, it, it, it's, you know, for for something that's that's labeled as, you know, part of Velvet Slippers Club, and it, it makes it seem like it's more elite in prestige than than it is, and it feels very, it feels very accessible. And again, it's it's not it's not to demean it in any way. It's very satisfying, but but at the same time, you can you can definitely tell that there's there was some craft and care put into it. So it was it wasn't just something that was that was slapped together, and, and it was something that was that there, there's definitely thought and care put into it. So all in all, very very satisfying. Yeah, those who know me know I'm a big rosé fan. I'm not going to say really anything bad about most Arizona rosé, and I think that Arizona rosé is going to help rosé as a whole make that comeback from the stigma of that most evil of beverages, white Zinfandel. 
Um, <laughs> friends don't let friends drink white sand. Uh, maybe that's one thing why it's it's very common. So like if if you're if you're used to drinking that, then it's like several steps up. If you want to have more, I guess more credibility <laughs> to you, so you don't you don't come off like a complete jackass or something. <laughs> If you don't want to, if you don't want to seem like a cheap poser or something. Hey, everybody, look, it's a poser. He's a poser. Sorry, I couldn't. <laughs> I'm sure hipsters. Well, on a complete side, side note, at some point, is different than hipsters in in uh, Williamsburg, New York. <laughs> But yeah, I think rosé is a pretty good gateway wine for those who perhaps, you know, it's a better gateway wine in general, I think, than Moscato. And not only that, it's a gateway wine that shows the winemaker's craft. Mm -hmm. It's not super easy to make a good rosé. I mean, yeah, you see them in most Arizona wineries, but that's because it's something that we do well out here. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of craft that goes into rosé. There are multiple ways to make a rosé. It's just a great thing to make and drink. Is, is it just because... Is it just because the varietals that go into it are are just easier to handle it in Arizona? Is that, is that what makes Rosé kind of... You know, I think it's less to do with, well, partly to do with the varietals that are growing out here and the way that they grow and the way that the monsoon affects them. Yeah, like, for instance, yeah. Sangiovese and Grenache and Nebbiolo, I would say those are the three biggest Rosé grapes in Arizona. You can make a Rosé out of almost any red, with minor exceptions, and I'll get to those in a moment. But you can make a Rosé from just about any red but reds that are particularly suited for it in Arizona are Grenache, Sangiovese, and Nebbiolo because for some reason here, it is really hard for them to get that dark color that they have in their homeland. Take, for example, Nebbiolo. Nebbiolo in Italy is used to make Barolo and Barbaresco, which are two of the most tannic dark reds that you can find. But here in Arizona, it's really hard to extract that color. Something about the color compounds in the skins of those grapes bind up with the increased moisture that you get during the summer monsoon, and they they filter out too easily. You can't extract those from the skins. Mm-hmm. Why that is, we don't know. As far, well, as far as I don't, I don't know. Anyway, perhaps there are people out here that are working on that. Um, I wish I had asked Michael Pierce that question. Actually, when he was doing his podcast, he would have known because he's essentially involved in winemaking and the chemistry part in Yavapai. I would, I would imagine topography being a big, big part of it because Italy is. Largely, I mean, you, you got you got mountains, but you also got a lot of you got. I mean, you got mountains and river valleys in Arizona too. But um, I believe your I believe your soil tends to be drier, drier in the south, maybe not as much moisture, and then rockier in, in the north. I mean, that's just that's just me being simpleton me. I feel like topography and terroir have less to do with it than the summer monsoon. Okay. Um, because in some years, Sangiovese is darker. Mm-hmm. Grenache always tends to be light. Nebbiolo, sometimes you can extract a fair bit of color, but it's never as dark as it would be in Italy. And I think that's because of when we get our rainy season during just before and during the early parts of harvest. Okay. All right. That makes sense. That's my theory anyway. I'm sure someone out there knows better than I do, and I welcome someone telling me what the hell is going on with these grapes in Arizona and why they're usually so light. But it seems to me that those three grapes, the consumer, Suni at Caduceus right now is super dark for an Arizona Sangiovese. But I've also seen other Arizona Sangioveses that are pale like ghosts where you've macerated them on the skins for like two weeks 
works. And it's still light, like a rosé. You can't really tell the difference between a Sangiovese rosé that year and the Sangiovese that's not supposed to be a rosé. It's just strange. Hmm. Now, what I was talking about, there are certain grapes that you can't make a rosé from, and those are grapes that have not only the red skin, but also red flesh. Okay. Two of those that immediately come to mind, only one of them is going in Arizona right now, Alicante Boucher and Saparavi from Georgia is the other one. And I really actually think the Saparavi would grow well here in Arizona, but no one's tried to grow it yet. But because the flush of that grape is red, you can't really make a rosé because regardless of how long you let it sit, it's going to have a lot of color. Yeah. Do you like it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that, of course, comes to the... Now, when it comes to wine, really, yes, you can be, you know, this highfalutin, well-spoken guy who can describe all these flavors. But really, what it boils down to at the end of the day, it, it definitely, it definitely does its job, and that's that's all I really, really expect from, I, I guess, any kind of wine, no matter where you get it. Where you get it from, you know, whether it's it's your local vineyard or you go to the far ends of the earth for it. So it definitely. It definitely does its job. It does it very, very well. But yeah, when it comes to wine, what matters is if you like it, you drink it, you drink a lot of it, you buy a lot of bottles of it. If you don't like it, then you try something else. Yep, exactly. So anyway, we're going to be drinking this on our own and talking, (laughs) but the rest of y'all, you know, enjoy your rosé. Hope you have or are having or had a decent St. Trifon's Feast slash Arizona Statehood Day slash Singles Awareness Day. Slash Valentine's Day. <laughs> and until we meet again, this is Cody Vladimir Burkett, your friendly neighborhood wine monk, signing off with uh, friend Derek J. Power. And uh, until next time, take care. Adios, muchachos. Vaminos.